This is a podcast from the Sports Pro Insider Series. Hi everyone and welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro. I hope you're doing very well, as indeed you will have gathered from those big intro beats. We've got another podcast for you from the Sports Pro Insider Series. Uh, we're actually going to be bringing you two of them this week, both focused on the sports broadcast picture and what's developing in OTT. This time round, we're asking what sports media rights are going to be worth in the years ahead. Uh, within all that, we're going to be considering the impact of COVID-19, uh, the effects of digital disruption, changes in viewer behaviour, uh, the competition for share of wallet, uh, bundling and unbundling, the prospects for rights holders and the activities of the big media hitters. Those are some pretty substantial questions and we've got two very incisive contributors to answer them. Dan Cohen is Senior Vice President at Octagon and Yannick Ramka is the commercial lead for OTT Streaming at One Football. Uh, they'll provide some food for thought for sure. Uh, just a few parish notices, though, before we get into that. First up, if OTT is your business, uh, you might want to know about the second edition of the Sports Pro OTT Awards. We're going to be celebrating the pioneers of sports broadcasting and giving out gongs in a range of categories on the 2nd of December. Uh, including a whole load of new awards, Deep Breath, Platform of the Year in D2C, Platform of the Year for Aggregators, Innovation of the Year, Best Tech Company, Best Lockdown Solution, Best User Experience, Emerging Tech Company of the Year, Best in Fan Engagement, Best New Platform, Best Original Content, Best Use of Social Media, Best in Anti-Piracy, Best Digital First Production, Best Marketing Campaign, Best Startup Tech Company. Lots of awards on offer to recognize uh, just a ton of great work in a pretty unusual year. If you think your company has produced some of that great work, you have until the 25th of September to get an application in and get yourselves on the shortlist. How do you do that? Well, your first step is to point your browser at sportspro-ottawards.com where you'll find all the details 25th of September is the deadline for applications. Best of luck to anyone thinking about entering. Quick reminders as well about what else is to come from Sports Pro in 2020. On the event side, uh, we've got virtual summits with real insights. Sports Pro Live is going to be driving the new era of sports on the 16th and 17th of September. All you need to know on that one at sportsprolive.com. Head to sportsproasia.com for all the details on Sports Pro Asia, which is taking place on the 21st and 22nd of October. And keep an eye out for updates on the Sports Pro OTT Summit. For now, just pencil in the 1st to the 3rd of December uh, and look out for news on sportspro-ott.com. More soon on that one. And we've had months months of great stuff from the Sports Pro Insider Series. Uh, we do have a little bit more on the slate. We've got sessions to come on athletes in business 
and on leadership. Uh, but everything so far is available on demand and completely free at sportsproinsiderseries.com. If you've not caught up yet, do it now. You will not regret it. Anyway, enough of that. On with today's podcast. Uh, an apology on one point from me. I was using an untested audio setup here. And it does sound a little bit like I'm calling from a phone booth in the mid-90s. I'm very sorry about that. Hope it doesn't affect your enjoyment too much. Uh, and we'll certainly look into that one for next time. Anyway, it should be more than made up for by our guests. You're going to be hearing from Yannick Ramke, from Dan Cohen, and from me just after this. You're listening to the Sports Pro Podcast. What I suppose we're, we're kind of getting towards, guys, is looking back at that poll or that question, um, which of the following is the most expensive TV rights deal in history? And wondering whether we're going to see uh, anything on that scale again. Uh, or if we're going to continue to see those kind of records rising over the next decade, given not just everything we, that's happened over the last few months, but everything that's been happening over the last few years in terms of uh, uh, disruption to the, the, the pay TV rights model that uh, that we've all become so familiar with and that the industry's become so dependent on. Um, just to start us off, though, guys, I mean, let's let's reflect on on the last few months because, you know, one of the features has been this kind of scramble to get sporting events to happen in whatever form they can take. Obviously, we're uh, getting into the closing stage of the Champions League, which is about to finish this week in a very radically altered format with, you know, these knockout games. It's been very good fun, uh, but it's very, very different from what the uh, rights holders and broadcasters, what UEFA and team marketing and all their many uh, broadcast partners would have signed up to. Um, what what are the patterns that we've seen during the pandemic in terms of those revisions uh, to rights deals? And, and, you know, how have rights holders and broadcasters been able to recover value? How well have they done that? And what are, what are some of the things that we've seen them do uh, in order to pull that off? Dan, why don't we, we'll, we'll start with you. Sure. So thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. The There's three main themes that we continue to see throughout this COVID impact between broadcaster and, and property. One, a massive shift towards digital and social inventory. We could talk a little bit more about what that means and what we're seeing specifically as our discussion goes on. The second is really the, the, the great collaboration between the two. And what that means is how do we come together? Usually you sit at the other end of the table and you're you're banging on the table for more money, for more rights, for more territories, for more platforms, for more languages. And now it's really issued in this new golden age of collaboration for the most part. And the third theme that we continue to see is the addition of athlete driven content. How can we find more access to the athletes themselves? As in some cases, these athletes become even bigger and more influential, particularly on social and digital than the teams in which they play for. And so how, how can we create additional content around those athletes? How do we get offline, meaning off the field, off the pitch content included in our next round of rights or injected into the current round of rights? Yannick? Yeah, thanks for having me um, as well. Uh, really looking forward um, to the discussion. And yeah, speaking of discussion, I can pretty much echo was what Dan just uh, shared with us. 
And in addition, just to take a step back, I really think that uh, yeah, both parties at the uh, negotiation table quickly realized that it's in the mutual interest to um, yeah, sustain this sports media industrial in uh, complex even through such an unforeseen event um, such as the pandemic and have quickly tried to figure out, okay, how can we create pretty much new value uh, out of thin air in the immediate short-term future as pretty much everything was on hold and then referred to um, the digital space, which um, certainly played a huge uh, role in this regard. But also then uh, more recently, um, when uh, more and more sports um, came back, how we can recover value or how, we ca how can we increment value um, of the sports um, that uh, has been staged. And I think something that we have clearly observed has been that it's it has been transitioned from, from a made-for-TV product to a purely made-for-TV product to really accommodate all the wishes the broadcasters might have had before and never really um, were followed up on, like, for example, um, yeah, um, staggering the schedule even more to have more live exclusive uh, broadcasting minutes or things like that. Um, we are now really implemented to recover as much value as possible after yeah, um, the world of sports was paused for a few months. Mm. Um, quick reminder just to our audience that we are going to be taking questions from you pretty regularly through the session, so do be sure to keep those coming in. Um, just, you know, obviously, uh, it's interesting what you mentioned there about it being a, a made-for-TV product, Yannick, and um, there are a, a whole range of conditions that are obviously very, very different um, as far as the performance of, of this content is going to be, as far as the performance of the events and, and whatever else people are able to get out there is going to be partly a, a lack of competition because we don't have other live events when we're going to have a bit of a, a kind of um, a bit of a content drought from other parts of the entertainment media because they haven't been able to work over the last six months uh, in the way that they, you might have expected. Um, but also we're going to come into now, I think over these autumn months, a real kind of uh, crunch in terms of how much sport is out there, you know, because we'll have so many things having shifted into this slightly safer period for putting events on. So what kind of, uh, what kind of comparisons, Dan, are, are both sides going to be able to make um, in terms of some of the adaptations that, that they've made versus what they might be able to do in normal times and, and in terms of the things that they're going to be able to, to keep or they might want to keep um, coming out of, of this period? Well, they say that necessity breeds innovation and nothing has bred innovation greater than this pandemic across the world in any sector of any business. But specifically to our business, the production side has been phenomenal. On the whole, I mean, we haven't seen a glitch. We haven't seen, and we've moved almost entirely for some leagues to remote production, to Remy production, which many broadcasters have been hesitant to, to go full throttle on. And this has forced that, that hand. Virtual signage and the technology, ad technology has really jumped through the roof, in my opinion, and what you can do. Uh, look what the NBA has done. They've spent $150 million in converting the worldwide of sports ESPN complex into an NBA state-of-the-art technology center. It's not just a basketball court. So I think between the production, going remote, 
some of the ad tech innovation, virtual signage. I think those two would be the ones that would stand out to me as the, the biggest innovation wins. I think the other piece too is, and it's not necessarily related to broadcasters or, or, or properties, is the telcos and the broadband companies. I mean, getting more into like a TMT discussion, the, the ability and capacity to handle the amount of streaming that we've seen and measured over the last five months is outstanding. And we're not even in 5G in most of the world, right? But yet you're still getting high quality streams, low buffering, pretty much anyone in the world that has a broadband connection is, is online and not having too many issues. You don't hear about too many streaming issues these days. Uh, when it was just last year and Amazon would have issues with their streaming feed for the US Open in the UK or Delta Trade would have issues here and uh, with Syria perhaps or DAZN. You really don't hear about that during a pandemic when you've got 33% more streaming load, right? hundred and about 170 billion minutes were streamed in the month of April. That's an all time high for the US. And there, there wasn't, you know, social media wasn't on fire with, with buffering and streaming issues. So I think a lot of this has to also be kudos to the folks that work in the back of these broadband telco companies, the production heads, the technology heads over at the properties and the broadcasters to bring everybody the content um, without much without much issue. That's been fascinating from my perspective. Yannick, let's, let's just turn that on its head a little bit. And, and what are some of the things that would, uh, would give both parties reason to be cautious about taking lessons from this period? Yes, I'm a bit torn uh, when it comes to innovation, referring to Dan's points regarding um, what proof of concepts actually have been delivered within a short amount of time uh, about things that uh, otherwise might have been a few years in the future, like really streaming at scale remote production. In this regard, from the broadcaster's point of view, I fully agree that there are a lot of innovations will stick around and things have just accelerated, even though it's like something everybody says, but I think it's, it's actually true and it's the reason why everybody is saying that, uh, whether it's in sports or in other um, areas. So I'm with Dan on that side from the broadcaster's point of view. From the uh, consumer's point of view um, going forward, I think um, having the sole focus on staging the games for uh, as a media product um, was also able or has also been done under the assumption of total disregard for um, other interests, for example, the fans in the stadium, you, you know, have put all the um, off remote production or cameras in spots uh, in the stadium, wherever you want it. Or you have um, from the consumer in front of the TV or the streaming device, you have pretty much have an increased um, ad load when it comes to digital advertising, just to recover um, lost um, yeah, in stadium signage or so. So um, I think for this period of time, it has been fine and the tolerance of the consumer um, has been higher than normal. But in the end, I think we will find a, yeah, a, a balance of um, both sides. And as most of the things will stick around, but also I think some innovations, quote unquote, like the staggered kickoff times, like less game inventory, like we are seeing with the Champions League, um, or having uh, just yeah, a higher digital ad load 
um, will also be uh, dialed back a bit. And uh, in the end, the quote unquote new normal will be a fine mix that has to better accommodate other interests going forward once we are back to a somewhat uh, normal um, yeah, societal life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got a few questions coming in. I'm going to throw to those in just a second, but let's, let's take it back a step um, and imagine if we can, if anyone is, is still capable of that, if we'd been having this conversation in, in January, February, um, looking at what the, the kind of overarching pressures were on rights packages and on the rights market, pre-COVID, um, what what would you have suggested those were, Yannick, and, and which of those have been accelerated in the months since by, by everything we've seen? I truly think that a lot of um, hypotheses or assumptions or forecasts uh, for the future in terms of having a somewhat flattened out or stagnant um, overall sports rights market um, have been true before the pandemic and hold true now. I really do see two major threats uh, in terms of deflationary pressure on um, the rights fees that are going uh, to be paid going forward. The first one is simply the enormous and abundance of competition in the digital space. Pretty much everyone is fighting for the consumer's attention in the first place and hopefully monetization and a part of their wallet uh, in the second step. I think um, in order from a consumer point of view to simply have the resources um, to spend on such a new, newly found um, offering of digital entertainment. And they have to free up um, yeah, financial resources. And in the past, a lot of financial resources have been locked up by the traditional pay TV and subscription. And uh, I think then it's coming to cord cutting and why cord cutting is actually something dangerous for the sports rights market is just when they are cutting the cord and free up that um, budget to reallocate across other digital entertainment offerings, I think sports has, has to redefine yeah, its product and value proposition to stay attractive in comparison to um, other digital entertainment um, subscription. And um, that is pretty much the second threat I see to the um, yeah, um, level of uh, media revenue that can be generated is simply the monetization gap between traditional pay TV and OTT. Pretty mm. much OTT competitors like Spotify or Netflix have redefined the value for money proposition. It's just like totally redefined what the modern consumer is expecting for their money in terms of um, value. And uh, sports certainly has to yeah, get used to that new uh, reality that um, they might not capture the majority of uh, disposable income of uh, consumers, especially young ones, but have to come up um, with offerings that are attractive to younger consumers. And hopefully, at least in the long run, come once again close to the profitability of the uh, distribution model we had um, in the past, which yeah, supported and uh, yeah, caused that um, growth in media rights um, revenue. Yeah. Dan, how does that tally with some of the conversations you were having at the start of the year? Yeah, I, well, I, I just want to address one, one point that Yannick made, which was very astute, but also something that we need to be concerned about, which is the, the digital shift and how we engage a younger audience. Right? Everybody's worried about that, that next fan and how do we maintain that next fan? How do we grow that next fan? I think Nielsen came out the other week with their total audience report 
And for the US, 42% of those under the age of 35 during COVID watched only on digital or streaming, sport, television, anything, right? Only 16% watched on TV. That's concerning, right? Across the world, linear television, primetime linear viewership is down close to 6% during COVID. So yes, absolutely. Do we have to be concerned about how we attract and how we get the content to where the younger fan is? Yes. But what I, what we caution our rights holder or our properties about is the fact that you can't let this COVID impact and this rush to streaming uh, overcompensate your efforts to maintain your base. Because the truth is that it's very important to get the next fan, but the next fan that's under the age of 21 or the next fan that's under the age of 18, they don't own a credit card. They're not the ones swiping for the Netflix account, right? Or for the DAZN account or for whatever SVOD new streaming service you're talking about. It's still their parents and it's still the folks, you know, Jay Monahan at the PGA, big, big client of Octagons. He had a great comment the other, the other month when a reporter asked him, are you worried about the fact that you skew as the PGA tour, you skew so high, right? 65 and older is the average age of the PGA tour viewer. And his comment was, you know what? I'd rather have the, those 65 and older. They're the CEOs, of the fortune 500 companies that are out playing 18 every uh, weekend. They're the ones that control the ad dollars and they're the ones that are watching my content. So yes, are we taking the measures to make sure that golf be reimagined in ways that we can connect with a younger audience? Yes. And I'm sure people could debate whether or not the PGA Tour is doing all that they can or all they should. But you can't use COVID as an excuse to overcompensate for the digital fan and leave behind the folks that are really still swiping their credit card and paying for the content. Mm. Okay. Um, oh, and I, I apologize. You wanted me to address another point. Can you remind me what that was? Well, I was going to say, I, I think you, you broadly did address the point, which is, you know, what the pressures were on um, uh, on the rights market at the, at the start of the year, if we can ah. take it, not yeah, necessarily so Yannick, take it outside of COVID, but. Sure, y Yannick nailed it. Cord cutting is huge because cord cutting, it, it touches every pillar of the of the ecosystem, of the, of the cash flow wheel, if you will, of, of our business, right? It touches the affiliate fees, the subscriber fees, and the ad dollars, and that's what holds up our whole industry. And that was already accelerating to Yannick's point that was already accelerating prior to, but the difference is that was accelerating at about a two and a half percent clip per quarter prior to COVID. We're now seeing 5.6% in Q1 over seven and a half percent in Q2. And that is alarming. And so that that's one piece of the pie that, that is concerning uh, how quickly and how sustainable at that level will cord cutting continue or will it come back down as we've seen viewership pop and kind of mellow back and come back? Will the same thing happen with cord cutting? And then the other thing to keep a close eye on that happened pre-COVID, pre-pandemic is the shift to digital ad dollars, right? So last year, 2019 was the first year in which digital ad dollars were greater than that of the linear ad dollars. And that, uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. But at, a, but at a apples to apples, a CPM rate to a 30 second spot rate, there's still a massive gap. So the value there is still on the linear side. But as these digital ad dollars shift, can these digital platforms be able to go out and write sizable checks based on just the ad dollars alone will be a big question. Mm. Um, I'm going to throw to a question in just a sec, but 
something I wanted to pick up on there. I mean, it, it feels like there's uh, a divergence for sport between the medium and the model. So, you know, in terms of digital as a medium, that's going to be additive. There'll be something it offers a bit more choice. There'll be younger fans who'll enjoy uh, following things in a different way. And that older cohort is still going to be there um, for quite some time. Even if, you're, even if you're talking about a fan in the kind of 50 to 65 range, you know, we hope they'll be around with us for a little bit longer if you're talking about that that group. But the model is something different. And, and you know, I guess what we're talking about from a rights perspective is that you might have organizations that no longer feel that they have the same amount of uh, capital that they're willing to take a risk with or that they're willing to commit to a three, five year deal with a, the sports rights holder. Yannick, is that fair? I think that's totally fair. And I think it's important to explain or to state why OTT or the shift from linear to digital is actually a challenge uh, to monetize um, sports rights. If you look at the economics of OTT, they are simply so much inferior to um, the traditional pay TV in terms of how I can monetize one single um, user. If you look what is going on between the streaming services, how they are vying for the consumer's attention and afterwards their money, it's like hugely aggressively priced in terms of um, monthly subscriptions. Speaking of monthly subscriptions, there's so little friction of shorting month over month over month, where you then, in worst case, have to reacquire the user at uh, huge costs. And uh, all those economics are simply not comparable to the past, uh, to linear television, where, or I have often read uh, over the last couple of weeks, the future will never be as profitable as the past. And I think um, that's really something that uh, holds true here, um, at least in the short term. The question in the long term is how we can add incremental revenue streams enabled by OTT, by technology, to somewhat close the gap in terms of monetization. And one final point to what Dan said before regarding not leaving behind the current customer. I fully agree that the traditional pay TV subscription actually is the best product market fit for the mainstream still. And um, now it's about incremental revenues, incremental customers to find new and differentiated products that are tailored to the uh, modern fan. But I fully agree that uh, leaving behind uh, your most profitable customers and ignoring them is actually the worst thing you can do at the moment. Mm. And of course, the, a, I was just going to say, that. Oh, and it wouldn't be a good panel unless we disagreed a little bit, right? Yeah, I try. So, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, where, where, where I think my opinion would differ from, from Yannick's is, is on the point that the future is not, never going to be as profitable. I think the future is still extremely bright for, for properties and for broadcasters alike, but it's really about consolidation and scalability. And I think what, I'm, what I mean by that is when you've got Apple with a market cap of you know a, a nearly two trillion dollars and Amazon right on its heels, these folks are going to go out and buy. They're going to go out and continue to build e-commerce. Uh, they're going to be in your wallet if they're not already with digital products. And how that all comes together when you're looking at a Fox, seventeen billion market cap, you're looking at a CBS, not much bigger. There's potential there, and we're seeing it with Apple the other week announcing that they're going to launch for the first time 
a, a streaming bundle. And it's starting with CBS Viacom products, Showtime and CBS All Access on Apple TV. And you're going to see more of that merger, that consolidation, that JV, that partnership. And because that comes together with sports betting and with travel and with food and with culture and with film and uh, with e-com, I mean, it, it's right there already for Amazon to be able to have a one-click buy and, and buy your favorite kit while watching the Premier League. Like, it's all there. So as these come together, as regulations ease or perhaps change, I think the scale that these bigger folks will have, the Comcasts of the world, uh, they're going to provide opportunity to reach even greater profitability than they ever have before. But it's about being in front of the consumer, the fan, in more places than just the traditional TV set to watch a football match. Yes, keeping up the theme of uh, maybe not uh, agreeing, um, I think the profitability is there. The bigger question is, does this profitability trickle down to sports in the end? Or is it like retained at the distribution level, for example, of uh, big tech, um, but actually the buyers of the rights and uh, further down um, the road, the uh, leagues, will they benefit from those profit that will be accrued um, at the end of the uh, yeah, distribution or value chain? I think that's, uh, that's still a big question. And I, I would also question whether big tech actually will be a catalyst for rights fees in terms of getting indirect acquisition of such, um, which I don't see. I see it rather, I see them rather in the position of the value chain you just described as an aggregator, as a distributor, but the actual party who is buying the rights from the sports properties and therefore are responsible for, um, yeah, um, generating media rights revenues for sports. I don't see them being like the huge beneficiaries of the development which goes on with big tech distribution, bundling, scaling, etc. Join the conversation with the Sports Pro community. Follow us on Twitter at SportsPro. Find us on Instagram at sportspro.media. And connect to SportsPro Media on LinkedIn, where you can also become a part of our specialist OTT community. SportsPro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. Let's throw to some questions. In this one, actually, uh, Dan, you anticipated a little bit um, with your comments just a second ago. But uh, Nevedia Paramata uh, asks, do both of you feel there will be more bundling happening with MVPDs from pay TV operators? Uh, we've seen Apple with Viacom CBS, which leads to lower evaluation of rights, question mark. What do we think? Uh, what's, what's the direction there? Are we in a, a, a rebundling phase? Absolutely, 100%. It's, it, it's a rebundling of the linear package is what we're, we're seeing just in the digital format. Uh, but I don't know if that necessarily leads to lesser profits again. I, I think that mirroring greater society where we're seeing the haves and the have-nots, the, the gap between the two, it's happening in sports rights. So I don't think you can have a sweeping generalization about whether or not that will be a profitable endeavor to bundle for everybody or not. But let's look at the NFL, for example. The NFL is going to see a massive increase, right? The, the advertising industry alone in the U.S. is going to lose $12 billion. Cord cutting is down over 12.5% just in the first two quarters. What that does to affiliate fees and cable subscriptions, we're already seeing rebates directly to consumers. So with all that negative news and with all that 
red splashing on the, the balance sheets for these distributors, they're still going to pay a lot of money to have the NFL and to have the NFL exclusively. Where bundling is going to come into play is twofold. From the properties side, you're going to see smaller tier two, tier three properties align or have to align in our opinion. And, and how you go about that and what's the model? Is it direct to consumer? Is it just bundling our rights and going off to an agency and, and offloading it? Is it bundling our rights and going and talking to a pan-regional or a global platform provider? Nowadays, is it talking to private equity, creating an LLC hold co and bundling all of our, our football rights or basketball rights together as various leagues or entities? Athletes are doing it. They're bundling their rights. And then on the platform side, in terms of bundling, yeah, I mean, you just mentioned it, Apple, right, Viacom, uh, they're doing a, a ton of deals. You see all the virtual MVPDs coming together, and they're rebundling these channels with mixed results. But yes, absolutely, both on the property side and on the platform side, a rebundling is happening. Yes, um, with regard to the bundling at the distribution side of things, um, I agree it can be more profitable or more attractive both for the distributors as well for the parties who are buying those rights. In the end, you are trading ARPUs at the average revenue per user with scale. And I think it's just an equation we have to manage or a trade-off you have to manage and that can be um, positive in the end. I think where I would um, disagree here is um, with the fact that you alluded to it that um, you are talking about tier one properties, about the NFL, about the NBA. And I really think that we are going to see a polarization of sports rights valuation. I think the total market, which I at the beginning said seemed flattish as of uh, most recently and maybe also for the foreseeable future, I think that still can hold true while those absolute must-have properties will continue to grow their revenues. I think there will be a redistribution of the cake in the end towards the top-end um, properties that are just must-haves for broadcasters which are driving the business, which are driving the subscriptions. And uh, I think it, there will be a lot of um, cost-cutting on the edges, on the, fringe, on the fringes, and especially tier two rights, which also have benefited greatly over the past, let's say, decade decade with the rise of the pay TV, uh, will suffer the most, while tier one properties like the NFL, like the NBA, um, will further yeah, grow in revenues. And I think it's a safe assumption to say that the next domestic rights deal for the NFL will uh, increase not, um, that will, will not double most likely, but at least will have a really, really healthy uh, double digit uh, percentage increase. Right. Question from Jeremy Friedman. While COVID-19 has ushered in a new golden generation of collaboration for media providers, how have players been able to expand their influence as a result of this pandemic? Yeah, yeah. from, from our perspective, player-driven content has kept us very busy during COVID. Uh, we've got 1,100 athletes at Octagon, and, um, and, and there are more platforms now than ever before. It's actually almost impossible to keep track of your, your favorite athlete and find when they're going live on Facebook or, or Snapchat or, or anything else. Uh, but to that point, player influence has grown so much so off the backdrop of what's happening across society. 
and coupled that with everyone being stuck to their phone and mobile usage being through the roof during COVID and everybody on Twitter and, and the like, that the confluence of those two have really raised the bar for, uh, sorry, the confluence of three and, and missing out on live sport for many, 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 many months. So you put those three together, those three ingredients, and you make a cocktail for an incredible explosion of, of player-driven content. There have been close to uh, 26 billion minutes of player live streams just in Q2. And that we don't measure that in Q1, but I would, I think it's fair to say that that's probably double, if not triple that of what it was prior to COVID. Uh, you have athletes that are now doing deals directly uh, in mass with the likes of YouTube. Rob Gronkowski uh, just announced yesterday, he and his brothers will have their own YouTube channel. Giannis has had his own YouTube uh, channel for, for two years now. Steph Curry and what, the, what he's been doing online. Trey Young uh, and the political activism that he's having. But I think the challenge to the athlete-driven content business is not just the monetization point, but it's also the discoverability point. And that's where, shamelessly I'll plug agencies and not just Octagon, but advisors, media, marketers need to really help, agents need to help their athletes find out how to uh, be discovered. Because you don't know, there, you don't know when um, you know, Xander Shoffley after a PGA event is going to go live from his basement while he plays eSports, for example, or he challenges a friend to darts in his living room. And, and that is the piece that's tough. So the discoverability of athlete content is kind of the next frontier of tackling, as well as how you then monetize. Yes, just as an anecdote uh, for yeah, a sign of times uh, here at One Football, you can pretty much as an app user, another um, shameless um, plug just as you, Dan, um, you can pretty much follow different entities. And in the past, those entities have stro uh, strongly skewed toward teams, towards competitions. Um, and what we are seeing as of late is just that the player followership is just increasing tremendously more and more users are following individual players because it's just where the yeah, uh, interest has uh, shifted towards. What I have more doubts uh, about is during the pandemic with everything on hold, there was just less competition for the attention of the uh, consumer and uh, players' content was certainly a thought after um, or was thought after inventory. Now, when more and more live sports, for example, comes back, it just the yeah, competition for attention will become greater again. And then we are getting into the problem, which Dan mentioned is um, discoverability, which is just uh, in general, a huge challenge for all the content that, it, that, it, uh, that is out there in the digital jungle. And uh, maybe players content has an um, above average ability to cut through the noise to get to the um, fan because the association or the affiliation is so strong, but uh, it will face uh, increased just competition from all the other content, digital content, which now will um, slowly but surely uh, come back as we return to normalcy. Mm. Just, to, just to look at that issue of, um, uh, of the, the rise in athlete followership more generally, and I know it's been perhaps skewed um, 
a little bit out of context by, by what's been going on, but it had been a trend that we talked about and it was something that we talked about as being a, uh, a feature of, you know, social media led um, distribution and social media led discovery that, that skews to the individual more than the, uh, more than the, the organization. What does that do as, as, uh, as rights holders start moving into that digital space more deeply, what does that do? Does it provide competition or does it provide a different marketing challenge? You know, is it just the case that, okay, we have Ronaldo playing in Syria, that's now an asset to Syria that we have to exploit differently or more aggressively than we might have done in the past? Or does the followership of an individual athlete provide, you know, competition for either rights or advertising dollars in a particular space? Yannick? Yeah, happy to take the, uh, that one. I think uh, it can be um, additive or it can uh, support um, whatever attention the right holders uh, have. But what we are also seeing is like the athlete becomes empowered. And we're seeing that with things like, for example, the fight over um, ownership of data, for example, where athletes want to uh, yeah, retain or regain uh, those um, those uh, that IP pretty much uh, from uh, from yeah third parties because it just has become more valuable nowadays um, since we are just able to yeah leverage that data more and more. The same will be with um, with yeah social media content or other content that athletes are putting out there. I think there would be additive and incremental to the rights holders activities if they're working together and but then most likely athletes uh, would like to be paid for that i think it's just assets that um, athletes can build up and the asset is pretty much the brand the reach and the personality and um, which then can be helpful for rights holders but in the end it's not a given because i think um, everybody has um, yeah his or her own interest in the end Dan, I wanted to take it back a, a step to something you said a, a few minutes ago, which was talking about maybe second and third tier rights holders beginning to band together uh, to provide a, a measure of security or a measure of kind of, you know, collective uh, influence in, in, in some of their uh, conversations with broadcasters and media companies. But how do you how do you see that panning out? Well, I think for the folks that are engaged in long-term deals, particularly in the US, for example, where you can go 15 years out, you're seeing a lot more uh, forgiveness across the board. You're seeing a lot more amortization of loss over the, the remainder of the contract. You're seeing a lot of, I, I used this reference before, like a cocktail of ingredients, right? So it's not just pay me hard cash and we'll make good, we'll come up, we'll, we, we'll negotiate either in court or out of court, hopefully out of court, a, a, fair, a fair market price for, for the lost inventory. In some contracts that we're working on right now, there's already a model in place for lost inventory and a pre-calculated definition of what that is. But for both sides not to rush to just a financial solution and looking at how they can further exploit the rights they've been given or how they can add to those rights, either by term, by platform, by territory, by access. That has been a growing trend and something that we urge both sides to look at when you've got a long-term deal. 
Now that's very different. We look at Germany, we look at uh, we look at France, we look at other parts of the world where you're at the tail end of a of a rights agreement. You've overpaid to Yannick's point, kind of the gilded age of the last decade, right? So you've overpaid for some of these rights, and you want out, and it becomes a much more difficult conversation in in those instances about it being anything other than cash relief. And so our approach, and we're handling one of those uh, right now, our, our approach to that is less so about the, the number of the, the, the cash forgiveness, if you will, the cash inventory lost, and knowing that that's gonna be critical. But it's more so looking at how can we use other levers across your business to make your business whole? And it comes back to a lot of it data. Data is, I think Yannick, you touched on this before, data has become a currency. It's not a currency that necessarily is, uh, you can't go to the grocery store and buy your grocery or pay your, your mortgage or your rent with it, but it certainly is becoming a growing currency. And so when you are a Eurosport, when you are a Discovery, when you are a Bundesliga and you have so much data on your consumers, how can we cross share legally, cross share more data than we ever had to help you grow your initiatives and your projects and your direct to consumers and your direct to consumer advertising. So again, uh, it's mostly cash on the shorter term deals, uh, but the collaboration across data and helping you grow your other businesses to remain in good faith and good partnership has become a growing trend. Yes, that is a super important um, thing to address, which became even more relevant now with the pandemic, but was also previously in discussion whether long-term deals foster innovation or not, whether long-term deals are the better approach to selling rights or not. And I think there is just the fundamental difference in approaches between Europe, which is much more regulated in terms of how the market uh, works compared to North America, where it's more a free market with the invisible hand uh, steering um, or forcing the market in its yeah, natural um, state. So what we have observed, and Dan mentioned it here in Europe, it has been much more of a business relationship between uh, broadcasters and leagues compared to the US where it's much more a partnership. And I think um, therefore such situations we like not being able to deliver the promised live sports programming to the broadcasters is much more manageable and um, much easier to figure out when you have like a long-term relationship like in North America compared to the three to four year cycle in Europe where you pretty much uh, your only hope is to recover your upfront investment uh, until it is time to either renew or be finally able to cut your losses. And I think um, that, um, yeah, coming back, whether that's um, supportive or it uh, has negative impact on innovation, on um, profitability is uh, something to discuss. And there are arguments on both sides uh, of, um, of the table or of the discussion, but it certainly has helped in this specific case of the pandemic to manage uh, to figure things out. Okay. Now I've done a really terrible job of uh, including audience questions throughout, as I promised up the top, but uh, I do want to include one more just before we throw back to Will, uh, and that's from Rico Petrillo, who asks, how do network effects, community, uh, play into commercialization of content and inventory? Network effects, I can take that and then hand over to you then. Um, at least as I understand uh, the question, so network effects pretty much are observable 
uh, once again with the big um, tech platforms when it mm. comes back to the discussion of distribution and scalability of um yeah of, it's, um, it's that context rather than a tv network kind of thing yeah and i think and then pretty much um laid it out before those distribution platforms that have scale that have um, the built-in user bases are crucial to um for sports in general to stay competitive compared to other digital entertainment uh, offerings but um because it's simply difficult if i'm a sports property and uh, assuming that i have the ambition to go direct to consumer and i think it's important to mention that ott and direct to consumer are two different things once again but if i want to have the direct customer relationship it's just so difficult um even in other digital entertainment uh, spaces or areas if you are a netflix you can do it if you are a spotify you can do it you might can still uh, skip those huge distribution platforms which have those tremendous user bases thanks to network network effects you can skip them because you have this brand power that you can cut through the noise but um, even the nfl doesn't depend on such distribution platforms but i think um, starting with tier two to long tail sports content bundling distribution facilitated by network effects and large platforms is just um, yeah necessary to gain scale when it comes to streaming in the end mm -hmm. I would just add the brand piece to that as well. Clearly, right now in the short term, the brand spend is is down and damaged due to COVID. But that that will come back. It always does, and, and we're firm believers that brands need sports and entertainment. So to that point, we're interested in seeing how brands will react and take advantage potentially of uh, these tier two and below properties that have lost some distribution. Right. Will a brand step up? Will a, will a brand from Scotland that's looking to open up uh, a regional headquarters or grow their market share in the US and Canada step up and say, you know what, SPFL, you've dropped distribution. There may not be a traditional platform for you in the US can Canadian market. And we're going to bring Celtic Rangers to US and Canadian fans through our own direct-to-consumer or OTT or Facebook page uh, and how brands can step in and potentially become uh, distributors unto themselves because the advent of streaming technology is something that we think is worth further exploration. Okay. Yeah, um, just maybe one final thought on that because we have actually observed something like that here in Germany where there was just, there wasn't a buyer for either the European or the World Championship in handball and uh, a financial bank or financial institution took up those rights because nobody was willing to take them or was willing to pay the amount demanded. And then just the bank said, okay, we are bringing a European or World Championship in handball to you um, via based or uh, upon uh, YouTube's um, um, streaming technology embedded on their website, etc. So there are those use cases and in the end, I don't think it's the preferred option of um, tier two and below sports, but it might be the best option. And that was the case back then. It was the, there were no better alternatives, but for brands looking from their point of view, it's an opportunity, fully agreed. Okay, I think we're, we're about ready to wrap up, but just to, just to close guys, I mean, I think the, the upshot of what you've been talking about is that the rights market is gonna continue to grow, but it will grow very differently from what we've seen. So on a macro level, it will get bigger, but 
uh, we'll see a very different set of dynamics at play. What do what does everybody need to be ready for over the next ten years? How do they need to uh, adjust attitudes and, and practices? So, um, but I think it's really important to really capture the entire addressable market, or which is in in theory addressable, is that you much better differentiate uh, your offerings. There is no one size fits all anymore, but um, pay TV is still highly relevant and uh, drives revenues going forward because it is uh, relevant for the mainstream consumer. That is still true. Nonetheless, in order to capture the incremental customer, you have to come up with new offerings and uh, new price points, new products um, that are attractive to yeah, those more fragmented uh, preferences among the consumers and uh, to um, yeah, hand over to Dan with one thing. I find the mobile only pass, for example, from MediaPro or Telefoot is such product and price differentiation aimed at capturing the incremental dollars of uh, yeah, maybe the younger audiences that just live at the mobile phone and <coughs> willing to pay um, for such content at half price compared to the fully fledged subscription. I think we are going in that kind of direction. Done. And just to build off of what Yannick was saying, it's, it's really about fragmentation and, and the fact that we're all distracted on different devices, on different apps. There's only going to be more TikToks to come. And so being mindful over the next decade that the attention span is getting shorter and how are you changing your product to make sure that you are digestible across all attention spans and also that you are attainable to Yannick's point about the fact that consumers, consumer behavior has fundamentally shifted and will shift forever due to COVID. So making sure that you are mobile and digitally friendly and making sure that you are available whenever, wherever. Those are the, the key themes, I think, over the next decade. All right, thanks very much, guys. Will, we'll hand it back over to you. Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon.